1: It's Wednesday, December the 15th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In a moment, I'll be joined by our London correspondent, Dennis Staunton, and later on in the podcast, I'll be talking to Irish Times columnist Newton Emerson. But first, Christmas is coming, and that means that we're going to be recording one of our Ask Me Anything shows for next week with the Irish Times political staff. And if you have any questions for the team, please do send them in to us by this Saturday, December the 18th. All the questions will be considered for broadcast, subject to the usual rules of taste and decency, of course. And you can mail your questions to politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. That's politicspodcast at irishtimes.com by Saturday the 18th. We are especially receptive to questions submitted as a sound file uh, so that we can add your own dulcet tones to the squawking, honking and whinnying that you usually get here every week. Although that is obviously not the case when the always mellifluous Dennis Staunton is on the line from London. Hello, Dennis. Hi, Hugh. Um, you are preparing to go in and observe the goings-on in the House of Commons. Plenty of goings-on there at the moment. A really embarrassing uh, rebellion from Tory backbench MPs last night.
0: Yeah, it was a big uh, defeat for Boris Johnson in terms of his internal party uh, numbers. But obviously, the uh, because Labour supported these measures, it was about new measures to combat uh, coronavirus. And they're pretty mild by Irish standards, but nonetheless, they were all too much for... Uh, about a 100 Conservative MPs, and particularly this idea that you would bring in some kind of COVID certification to get into a nightclub or a venue with more than 500 people, if you can move around in it, or for very big venues. And so uh, around about a 100 Conservative MPs voted against the government on this. And it was particularly embarrassing because just uh, less than an hour before they voted, Boris Johnson had been talking to them in the 1922 committee, which is the backbenchers group, and pleading with them to support the government, saying this was the responsible thing to do, that he was doing this so that he wouldn't have to bring in tougher restrictions afterwards. And effectively what they said to him was, we don't trust you. And uh, so they went and they voted for this. And and it puts him in a very difficult position because uh, these measures are pretty mild. It looks like the Omicron variant is just about to overwhelm us all, here in London especially. And uh, there's a good chance that in the next few weeks he's going to have to bring in tougher measures. And the question is, where does he stand with his own party when he tries to do that?
1: And... As you say, they are by Irish standards quite mild. Why the very, very strong resistance
0: to to these in the UK it seems to be a very different mindset there. I think it's partly that there is this very strong libertarian element on the backbenches, and uh, and so they resist uh, anything that looks like uh, an infringement of personal liberty to them. I think another part of the problem, though, is the way in which Boris Johnson has handled both his MPs and this issue. So, for example, last week when he was facing all these embarrassing questions about parties that had gone on in Downing Street a year ago, which seemed to have broken the lockdown, uh, he uh, appeared to bring forward various announcements about uh, the coronavirus and about what he was going to have to do about it. And this looked cynical to his MPs, some of whom said, You're asking us to vote on these things, but you actually haven't waited for the evidence to show, for example, exactly how this variant is behaving. Is it really as dangerous as you say? What's the actual threat to the hospitals? And also, uh, whether any of these measures actually work. You know, you've had vaccine passports in Scotland for a while and still there having the same kind of level of infections as we are everywhere else. And so part of it is really to do with the measures and this kind of libertarian streak. But another part of it, I mean, if you look at the people who voted against uh, the government, they came from all the wings of the party. There were uh, people, there were Red Wall people who just won their seats in 2019. There were old loyalists of Theresa May. She abstained on the vote herself. There were, uh, you know, people from every area. There were old Brexiteers. There were Remainer types. There were all... All kinds of people which had in common the fact they're all fed up with Boris Johnson. And some of in some ways they're fed up for different reasons. And some of them appear to have been sending a signal to Boris Johnson, you need to get your act together. You need to sort out Downing Street. Your Downing Street operation is crazy. It's chaotic. It's filled with courtiers who uh, are afraid to tell you the truth. And you need to kind of get a better operation.
1: And what are the chances of him doing that? He really has had over the last, what, three, four, five, six weeks, since the uh, since the, the, the mess over the over Owen Paterson resignation through to these ongoing stories about the behaviour of Downing Street staff over the course of last Christmas and them breaking regulations and that's been leaking out, continuing to drip out photographs of parties and various other types of things. Um, what are the chances, do you think, that he can actually get a grip? Is this not the Boris Johnson
0: style that we're seeing here? It is the Boris Johnson style, although there are a few styles that Boris Johnson has in his repertoire. And so, uh, for example, until about a year ago, Downing Street was run by... Uh, Dominic Cummings in a reign of terror. And everybody was afraid of Dominic Cummings, including the Prime Minister himself, it seemed. And so you had this authoritarian uh, approach to governing, uh, ignoring the rules uh, when it suited him, but at the same time imposing this absolutely brutal discipline uh, on MPs who felt they were treated with absolute contempt, as indeed they were. But they were afraid, really, to resist. And then once uh, Cummings and his Vote Leave gang were uh, thrown out the door. Then there was great rejoicing uh, among MPs and a, a more civilized regime appeared to get in there. But then there'd been all these uh, whispers about people who are too close to Boris Johnson's wife, Carrie, former acolytes of Michael Gove, that this group of people are in there and that, you know, that it's gone from a position where the prime minister's voice didn't matter at all because Cummings was making all the decisions to the prime minister's view being the only view that matters. And nobody being there to say, actually, you need to do something that you don't feel comfortable doing, and nobody having the authority within Downing Street to do that. So one way, obviously, that he can do something about that is to fire a few people, which he'll probably get an opportunity to do when the Cabinet Secretary reports into these uh, parties that happen. So there'll be an opportunity for a bit of a, a reshuffle. And then the question is, can he get in somebody that he trusts and who is uh, can get a grip on the Downing Street operation, say, to act as chief of staff. And there have been a number of names floating around, but every time a name pops up, the name themselves make clear they're not going to have anything to do with it. And so I think that, in a, in a funny way, I mean, I think there's going to be a bit more bad news to come. There's a chance that uh, a by-election in North Shropshire, which, uh, you know, they won in 2019 with nearly twenty uh, twenty three thousand 23,000-seat uh, vote majority, that that could actually be lost, now, even if they cling on to that by a few hundred votes, obviously it'll be a bad result, but they'd, they'd take that, thank you very much, as being something like a like a, a victory. But if they lose that, that's obviously going to be, there will be further questions. And then the question is, I think, though, what happens with the pandemic itself? So could it be that actually the pandemic, uh, the Omicron variant moves so fast, that public opinion moves ahead of the Conservative Party and that the people suddenly realise that they're at risk and they want more restrictions. And that's how it has gone in the past with this pandemic, that actually the public have embraced restrictions. And so, that, for example, when Downing Street did a, would do a focus group, uh, you're at the height of it all saying, uh, we're thinking of, of, of introducing a curfew for 10 o'clock. What do you think? The focus groups would say, why not make it nine? And so they always wanted a little bit more. And so there's a chance that Boris Johnson, strangely enough, could find himself in the next few weeks if he does defy those backbenchers, and if he goes with the benefit of Labour votes to uh, to move ahead, he could actually find himself closer to public opinion. And that could mean that there's a softening in the rebellion, because it suddenly, instead of looking rather brave to uh, to be opposing these restrictions, it would start to look foolish. So there is a chance that those circumstances will change things for him. But at the same time, I think he does need to get to do something to get a grip on the Downing Street operation because these mutinous noises coming from his MPs have suddenly become serious they've started to talk about his actual future
1: well indeed and and on that i mean you've been um very consistent throughout your analysis of this this particular government in describing the transactional nature of the relationship between the the conservative parliamentary party and Boris Johnson he's there because he won them an election and they believe he can do so possibly in the future. Once that belief begins to waver, his position begins to become unstable because there are no real Johnsonites. There is no Johnson wing as such in the Conservative Party. In a way, this is always true of the Conservative Party. It's notoriously cold-blooded about these matters, isn't it? But listening to you there, I don't think you think, am I right, that that there's going to be an attempted heave in the, in the spring or before next summer or anything like that, unless some other catastrophe happens.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're never too far from a potential catastrophe here at the moment. So so you know, I certainly wouldn't bet against another catastrophe or an unforeseen scandal, something that we really had no idea about. I think, for example, if pictures were to emerge of uh, these alleged gatherings in the Downing Street flat, hosted by the Prime Minister and his wife during lockdown. If that turns out to have been the case, that, uh, that those things happened, the Downing Street is denied they ever did. But if they did happen, if there are pictures of them, I think that could make things a bit difficult. And I think it's all to do with the question of the Conservative Party's nerves, and the nerves are very fragile at the moment. I think one of the things that has kept Boris Johnson in place for so long is the idea that if people imagine themselves in a campaign, do they think that Boris Johnson is better placed to help them to hold their seat or not. And certainly in the Red Wall, uh, a lot of those MPs would have thought that he was the connection with their voters, with Brexit. And a lot of those people who voted last night against the government are those people in the Red Wall seats, which suggests that they're wondering about that now. And so it could be that, uh, you know, it's a, particularly if the potential rivals or rather their friends, start to build up a bit of a narrative about how Rishi Sunak would be a better bet going into the next election, or Liz Truss, or Jeremy Hunt, or whoever it happens to be, how you're better off with this, and you'd be more in tune with your voters. And also the other thing that's going to happen over the next few months is they're going to be watching the the opinion polls. Labour has Pulled ahead in the polls with its biggest poll lead over the Conservatives since 2014. Now that polls can come and go, but if that, you know, sustains itself, and there's no question but that, uh, you know, Keir Starmer's new front bench, it has a a few, some much better media performers than his previous crowd did. And so there's a chance that, you know, there's more bad news for the, the government, more good news for Labour more anxiety for uh, the Conservative MPs and that they just decide, well, actually, you know, it's just better to lance this boil and we need to get somebody new in there to have a reset by the middle of 2022 to prepare for an election probably the next year.
1: From an Irish perspective, I'm sure lots of people might wonder how, if at all, any of this fits in with the current UK government's position on the ongoing negotiations on the Northern Ireland Protocol with the European Union. The heat seems to have gone out of that particular uh, process a little bit over the last few weeks. And indeed, there was another, I'm not sure if you describe it as a concession or a strategic withdrawal last week by the British government on the issue of the role of the European Court of Justice. Has the heat gone out of it and might it ratchet up again perhaps after Christmas
0: I think yeah a lot of the heat has uh, been deliberately withdrawn from it by both the British and the European side and so you hear uh, you know although there are these ritual uh, uh, you know repetitions by the on the British side that uh, article 16 remains an option if the talks don't succeed the fact is that you know uh, until a few weeks ago they were always on the point of triggering article 16 there's no mention of that anymore there used to be a deadline of three weeks for the end of the talks, and that's, you know, a couple of months ago. And so what's happening now is that Boris Johnson, or or rather David Frost and Maris Shevkovich will talk twice between now and Christmas. So uh, it looks like there's a a kind of a chance that we might get a deal on access to medicines for people in Northern Ireland. That's a particularly difficult and sensitive issue. And it involves a big concession on the European side in a way because they have to actually change their own rules. And so it looks like we might get that by Christmas. And then afterwards, uh, they'll go back in and try to get a deal on uh, the other practical issues like checks on goods and on animals and animal products going into Northern Ireland from Great Britain. What happened last week was that uh, some uh, European journalists based in London, including myself, we got a briefing from a senior uh, UK official, who said that uh, they uh, that uh, Britain's demand that uh, the European Court of Justice should be taken out of the protocol, that that should no longer have a role in uh, in in adjudicating the compliance with the protocol's rules, that that should be gone, that that uh, demand. Was not going to derail the talks. So, in other words, uh, this person was saying, "If these talks fail, it's not going to be because of that. We've agreed, and it's an, an important shift uh, in our position." This person said uh, that uh, you know we are going to just talk about the things that we both agree are necessary. We understand that the European Commission doesn't have a mandate to negotiate about, about the European Court of Justice. We think that in the long term that no durable solution can really be found without dealing with these governance issues, but actually we're, for the, for the purposes of these current talks, we're putting that one side, the issue of governance. Now Downing Street then, immediately after that, came down heavy and said this was, a a, a, you know, this was, this mischaracterized their position, as they put it. But they then, the denial then just went on to say no durable solution is possible without dealing with all the issues, including the European Court of Justice. So in a way it was a kind of a non-denial denial, denial, uh, or certainly it allowed, uh, it, it left open the interpretation that we still Uh, maintain that the European Court of Justice should be gone, but we're prepared to do a deal without it. Now, obviously, if they do a deal in the new year on those practical matters, even if they think they can come back later and try to get something on the European Court of Justice, they're deluding themselves because once you've done a deal on the practical issues, where's your moral authority to say... Like At the moment, the only moral authority they have is this claim that uh, the protocol is messing up life in Northern Ireland... Uh, Well, if it's not, what do you do? And just... Finally,
1: what's your read on that move? Because there was outrage, I think it's fair to say, in Dublin and possibly in Brussels as well, when this was thrown on the table as being one of the sort of the red lines or the deal breakers um, a while ago, given, as you say, the negotiations were supposed to be about addressing the actual practical problems on the ground in Northern Ireland and the political difficulties they were causing in Northern Ireland. And nobody, it seemed to me, in Northern Ireland was really giving out about the role of the European Court of Justice. So why this move now? I mean, it looks positive in terms of a willingness to do a deal that didn't necessarily seem to be there a month or two ago.
0: I think that the the British thinking has developed. I mean, I think that uh, one of the things that happened was that uh, they, because they, you know, if they had triggered Article 16 a few months ago, say in the summer or even early autumn, I think it might have been quite effective for them in terms of resetting the negotiations. They left it too late. And because they left it too late, the cost of doing it became too great because the Europeans made clear that they would retaliate in the most brutal fashion, like by terminating the trade agreement. And so suddenly the cost of it became too much, and that meant that it couldn't perform its function within the negotiations to just kind of twist the uh, you know the, the the lever so that the temperature would go a little bit higher in the negotiations to Britain's advantage. So Article 16 no longer was serving its purpose. And then there was a the question of what do you do? Do you, uh, you know, uh, keep the negotiations going forever and leave this as a kind of a frozen conflict? Or do you actually blow them up with uh, Article 16? Or do you actually try to do a deal? And so it looks like uh, from what we heard last week, at least from the senior official, that at least part of the government thinks it's time to start doing a deal. Now, I know that within the cabinet, there is some disagreement on this. Nobody quite knows Boris Johnson's mind, but certainly where David Frost would be something of a hardliner, there are others, for example, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, uh, who would be, uh, and indeed Michael Gove, who used to be involved in the negotiations, who would actually say, look, let's sort this out. This is, you know, uh, we have such bigger things to deal with uh, in terms of our relationship with Europe and also more trouble coming down the track economically potentially over the next year that we don't need this extra potential problem with the threat that it, you know, it entails to our economic future. So I think that, uh, you know, so I think the mood in government has shifted over the last while and I think we may be seeing uh, a, you know a mood towards trying to get this resolved early in the new year. Which doesn't mean that they will because in all these negotiations things can go wrong very quickly.
1: Dennis, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Stick with us. Newton Emerson is going to be giving us the view from the ground in Northern Ireland after this break. Newton, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Just before the break there, Dennis Daunton was telling us about that slight change of position, maybe not so slight really, by the British government over the the importance or lack of, or relevance of the European Court of Justice to the current negotiations over the Northern Ireland protocol. You've been writing at some length in recent weeks about the positioning or manoeuvring by the DUP in particular in relation to where it stands and under the Donaldson leadership. Jeffrey Donaldson came out again this week and said that the the idea of the DUP withdrawing from the institutions in Northern Ireland wasn't out of the question. What do you make of that happening and it happening this week?
2: Well, the fundamental thing you've got to realise about Jeffrey Donaldson's positioning is he's a mouse dodging under the feet of two elephants, really. He just has to take whatever the UK and EU decide. And so his positioning is to try and spin that with the various factions inside his party and the unionist electorate. Uh, And the fact that he's still repeating this threat to bring down Stormont, which nobody now believes, indicates that he's in a pretty desperate position. Not only does nobody believe he'd bring down Stormont, but he's out of time for it even to be plausible. There's a scheduled election uh, at the beginning of May uh, so, if uh, you know, if you brought down the assembly now, that would only be about three months before it's due to rise anyway, for the uh, for the election campaign. So, so, so what? Uh, and also, of course, we've legislation in force now, which means that the secretary of state can can brick can maintain the the uh, the, uh, the the institutions until the scheduled election that's legislation that the dup sought during the last collapse which sinn fein caused so he just looked ridiculous at about three different levels if he did it nobody's taking it seriously uh, it, it's a farce he's completely out of ammunition so the dup is done on this they're just a passenger a spectator and that's the only way to look at what they're doing
1: if though talks were to go uh, maybe go well is maybe pushing it but maybe you know to be productive and some of the you know the the real issues that that, you know that arise at the moment in terms of in terms of the movement of goods between um, Northern Ireland and Britain. Is there a possible win there at all for the DUP uh, in in advance of those elections in May? Uh, He has to the DUP
2: has to sell whatever happens as a win It it is no option Uh, and so uh, it, it will just it will just take what the UK gets some roseate and it in glitter. That basically will be what it what it will have to do. And of course, there are wins here. We're going to end up with a better protocol that is a more mitigated protocol than the one the DUP was saying was a gateway to opportunity just twelve months ago, less than twelve months ago. So uh, there there will be there will be enough there, I think, for Donaldson to, to have a go at, at at selling this. But again, everybody now in unionism and loyalism is wise to what he's up to. It's just going to be, he's just going to be laughed at. I think that that his real salvation comes from the fact that the majority of the unionist community is reluctantly, grudgingly accepting of what's happening. Uh, and so they will, I think, go along with it. But, but that, of course, doesn't include a huge chunk of the DUP's vote. They'll be furious.
1: And so, therefore, there's still a threat from the right, from the traditional unionist voice and Jim Allister at these elections.
2: I think that's vastly overstated, especially by polls. The TV is a one-man protest party. It, it's going to struggle to get a second assembly member, let alone the five to ten its polling results predicted. And everyone knows that. And I think that in the in in the ballot box or in the in the polling booth, voters will will recognise that, or their votes will transfer in effect anyway. So uh, I, I think that that's largely overstated. It's a bit of a protest vote, a protest even answer to posters. I think at the minute. But uh, what what will really what will really damage the DUP is simply people staying at home not voting for it that's that's where parties are damaged not really by voters moving but by voters just giving up on them and of course nobody sits at home
1: like a like a fed up unionist <laughs> is one way to get those fed up unionists out is to dangle the prospect in fact it's more of a prospect it's the, uh, the it's the extreme probability uh, of a Sinn Fein first minister which as we know is is Purely, you know, it's 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 not ceremonial, but it's it's symbolic if it's anything at all. It's not even particularly symbolic <laughs> if for anybody who actually knows the the rules of the game, the uh, of the of the Belfast Agreement. But is that a way of scaring the voters out of their comfort and out to the polling booths?
2: It is, and it has been in the past. However, it it doesn't seem to have the traction it used to. The the fact that uh, several polls in series showed the union vote splitting three ways indicated that scare didn't initially work. If unionist voters were motivated to have the largest party, why would they be heading off in three or indeed four different directions, if you count alliance, and consistently doing that? So it's, it's, it's it's a scare tactic that's lost its grip. It will still, I think, come back into play. And if the DUP can manage to pull quite close to Sinn Féin, if it's uh, if, if its numbers get, get back within a realistic range of beating Sinn Féin, then I think you might see uh, more voters thinking, oh, well, sure, we might as well give them a, a vote and get the first minister's post. Uh, ironically or, or, or perversely, when the DUP was 10 points behind Sinn Féin, uh, it was less likely to pick up, I think, on that that solidarity vote because most unionists would have thought, well, oh, what's the point? They're not going to beat Sinn Féin anyway.
1: And so it has this very difficult position, it seems to me, that it's, you know, it There is competition on the right to some extent from from the TUV. There's competition on the more moderate unionist liberal side um, from a a somewhat renewed Ulster unionist party and plus an alliance party as well, which appeals to, to some unionist voters. So it's got to look about three or four ways in the three or four directions at the same time. And then you add to that this perhaps loss of prestige or respect which you describe in terms of the the Donaldson leadership and indeed all the shenanigans that went on around leadership for the last year or so um it, are you saying really it's only it's only saving grace is going to be it'll remain the the largest unionist party and those the people will gravitate back towards it in the weeks before the election? is that it basically
2: yes I think that the uup's recovery I think is probably a little bit overstated uh it's um it's it, it's very largely uh Uh, an insider phenomenon. I think uh, Doug Beatty spends far too much time online, in my opinion. I I know that's the thing to do. And certainly you can extend that criticism to Naomi Long as well. It seems to work for her, though. Uh, But, I mean, Beatty also, he does get out and about. He has been meeting people everywhere. There's no doubt about that, too. But, I mean, I'm not not convinced there's going to be this massive Beatty bounce. I just don't see it yet. Um, And the polls are... Divided and confused on it as well. Some show the the UUP surging ahead, some show the Alliance surge still in full swing. And that's, those are both dependent very largely on unionist, floating unionist voters. Sure.
1: And then on the other side of the equation, as I said, the likelihood is that Michelle O'Neill will be first minister after after the next election. Uh, I mean, we can't rule out surprises, but that certainly looks like the most the most likely thing. And having said what I said about it not being particularly relevant to the day to day operation of the of the machinery of government in Belfast. I have no doubt that it will be marked and noted in some quarters as part of an inexorable political and demographic change on the island of Ireland and in Northern Ireland in particular. And if, as seems very, uh, very likely, Sinn Féin enter government in, uh, in the Republic at some point in the next three, three and a half years or whenever the next general election falls, that will further be seen as part of the same incremental change. As you probably know, we ran a poll in the Irish Times at the weekend about um views in the republic towards unity there's some quite interesting uh some quite interesting numbers in the, in that i thought um i was looking at a poll which was just published by the uh, the tory peer lord ashcroft who's in the habit of commissioning polls on views in northern ireland on irish unity what did you make of those numbers
2: uh, well you can compare them directly to his last poll in 2019 uh, and uh, which was the only poll ever to show unionism uh, falling behind nationalism, actually on on a border poll vote, 46% to 45%. And now unionism is back in a majority if a poll was called today. And uh, confidence that unionism would uh, win a poll has risen. Now it's 51% of people think that uh, in Northern Ireland in this poll think uh, that if a border poll was held within 10 years, unionism would lose it. But that again is, is, is is a better figure for unionism than Lord Ashcroft found two years ago so actually the headline result on this poll is unionism bouncing back a bit after i think the initial shock of brexit has worn off and bear in mind that's for the only poster that's ever found anything like uh strong support for uh for united ireland uh using uh, i think the, the the same online panel as used by the other main poster here so it's um it, there's not very there's not very much variety in this poll his analysis of it is is rather idiosyncratic uh, and I think that if you if you can just look at the trends there, I think you see you see something that that uh, Queen's University research has picked up as well, actually, which is that Brexit has caused a rise in support for unionism. This is part of the, the polarization uh, of Brexit's effects. We We know that it has caused a rise in support for nationalism. It's also caused a rise in support for unionism that has hollowed out the center ground. There are now fewer people describing themselves as unaligned. The fact that more of them are voting alliance, that you've got a more of an alliance and green vote, that's polarization as well. There are fewer centrists, but they're angrier. <laughs> so they're turning up to vote for alliance. Northern Ireland is the only place where you can have polarization in three polls. And so uh, so, so that, I think, would be my, my reading of what, of what we can make from Lord Ashcroft.
1: Oh my God! I'm not sure what to make of that uh, three-way polarization. I um, <laughs> you, I mean, you have written about the increased volume of the debate around the subject of, of Irish unity and how that you think is playing and will play over the next probably over the next few years in in Northern Ireland, and uh, and you have some interesting views on that. Do you think that there's a you think that things may work differently than than the way a lot of people do?
2: Well the first thing to remember is that um, we, we've all heard this all our lives. A United Ireland is inevitable and 10 years away. So uh, it's not it's not the, the the horribly divisive shock to the unionist psyche that uh, that some hope or fear. Uh, when you look at the numbers, there is no majority, no voting majority for a United Ireland in Northern Ireland and that's all that counts. It doesn't matter who's first minister, who's in government in Dublin in theory. Now, of course, if Sinn Féin is heading government in both places, they're going to campaign for a border poll. And Mary Lou MacDonald has said that campaign will involve lobbying Washington and Brussels to pressurise London to call a poll. That's outside the terms of the agreement mechanism for a poll. It could be considered to be foreign impediment, external impediment against an actual breach of the Good Friday Agreement. But Sinn Féin doesn't care, of course. It's all about maintaining that idea of momentum. And of creating the siege mentality that unionists are criticised for. Uh, You know, the the message from Republicans is we've got you surrounded and outnumbered. Uh, What's this siege mentality about? And that's going to be the the campaign going forward. We've got the whole world against you. Give up, give up. You've lost. And, uh, you know, that doesn't really work. I mean, it's the background noise of unionist life. So that's why you find, I think, unionists surprisingly Uh, relaxed actually about what should be an Armageddon scenario for them and will certainly certainly be betrayed that way outside Ireland. In the rest of the world, Sinn Féin in office on both sides of the border, is going to be seen as the end of the line. And so there'll be some perplexity when it turns out that that isn't the case. My main concern about the next decade or so is that this is going to cause frustration within nationalism about the Good Friday Agreement, because the Good Friday Agreement effectively gives uh, the unionist majority or plurality, as it is in Northern Ireland, a veto over everyone else—that's that's its fundamental mechanism. And how long is everyone else going to put up with that? You know, I I, I worry about that with the background noise that's going to be turned up. It's just a, an electoral campaign strategy for, for Sinn Féin. Of course, Sinn Féin does believe in a United Ireland, but they know as well as uh, as well as everyone else that they're not going to get it this way.
1: Might it at all be worth it for the Unionist parties to think strategically? that it might be good to have a referendum sooner rather than later when they're pretty confident that they could win, and perhaps more importantly than just winning, um, win by a substantial enough margin to take the prospect of another referendum off the table for a substantial period of time?
2: Well, when Sinn Féin first began seriously campaigning for a referendum, which I think was in 2013, uh, Arlene Foster, of all people, then a minister, said, bring it on. I think those were her exact words, bring it on and see where, you get, see where it gets you. But uh, you know, as the flag protest proceeded and things fell apart for unionist politics, that uh, the, that, that sort of cockiness fell silent, uh, and uh, and yeah, I, I mean, you've rarely heard that suggestion anymore. Peter Robinson has proposed in 2018 generational settlements between border polls. Now, the, the Good Friday Agreement requires a minimum of seven years, but I think his idea is you know reach 20 year settlements to give us a bit of peace in between them. Uh, so, uh, but but I mean, how how could you how could you? Uh, how, how, how could you specify that? You know, how could you say that? Say a, a border poll produced a fifty-one percent result for the union. How could you then turn around and say, "Oh, we're going to wait twenty years now"? You know that that wouldn't work. Uh, I, I think in, in practice, results will be set. Uh, the, the period between border polls will be set by the results, uh, and so there is no real advantage in unionism hastening this process.
1: Well, let me, let, let me turn that question around a bit. Is there is there any danger at all of, of, um, of Republicans being like the dog who caught the car and having a referendum before they have any prospect either of winning it or even getting a result that makes it possible for them to continue arguing for it for, for a second referendum quite quickly afterwards?
2: Oh, nothing will nothing will ever stop Republicans taking advantage of whatever happens. I see at the minute uh, uh, people in the border poll campaign simultaneously complaining that London won't call a poll and that it might call a poll at any minute for selfish reasons. <laughs> there's it's literally there's no winning with these people, so uh, why bother really? Uh, that 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 would be, I think, the general union's view. Leave them to it. Uh, how could you possibly object to anyone else having a debate or a conversation? They're fully entitled to do so but uh, we're not going to have anything to do
1: with it. In relation to a, a debate or a conversation, one of the things that's already happening and that I suspect is going to happen more and more is a series of what you might broadly describe as civil society initiatives, uh, uh, forums for debate, uh, research projects. I'd say possibly at some point in the future, depending on who's in government in Dublin, uh, maybe you know some kind of a, a, a People's Assembly or a Constitutional Assembly, to look at some of the questions around what some people call a shared Ireland, what some people call a united Ireland. I know those two things are quite different. There's a broad expectation that the unionist parties and unionism in general will be reluctant to participate in those, which personally I think would be uh, a shame. But some of the results of the, the Irish Times poll say to me that that's a project that nationalist Ireland should kind of get about anyway? Because it seems to me that a lot of things haven't been properly trashed out, a lot of really important things. And we only have to look at the example of Brexit to see what happens when nobody thinks about what comes afterwards properly.
2: Well, first things first, unionism isn't going to assist in negotiating its own demise. And I think that the most uh, sensible nationalists and Republicans accept that as a valid argument. Uh, you know, the invitation is there. That's very nice. Thank you, but no, I think, could be the, the general response to that. And if the argument that comes back to you occasionally here is negotiate now while you're still in the position of strength, well, I think, you know, what, what, what are we being threatened with if we don't? You know, isn't this United Ireland supposed to be one rights and equality for all? Not, you know, uh, get your argument in now, or it'll make it worse for you. You know that's not a particularly appealing
1: prospect either. But is it even is it even a question of negotiation in some of these forums anyway? Like I, I know, for example, that the the, the system of um of, of of assemblies here that's not a negotiation as such. It's more of a, a series you know series of presentations of papers. Things are taken on board, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a question of being forced to come in, you know, and fight for your rights.
2: All the calls for the, uh, as you refer to civil society groups. In fact, it's just basically one campaign uh, for a citizens assembly uh, are, are not proper citizens assembly proposal because it's about discussing and planning for a United Ireland. A proper citizens assembly in that form of consultation requires putting all the options on the table, and uh, and then and then and then working through them. So uh, you know you're not going to get that anyway. So uh, I think this is. I mean, it's. You know, it's it's not uh, it's not a proper citizens assembly process.
1: But if you had a citizen, just for the sake of argument, because I, I have my own reservations about this too. But if you had a citizens assembly which was on, you know, which was framed as being a debate upon the future constitutional um, structures on the island of Ireland, mm-hmm. would that be equally unacceptable or? Not worth engaging with uh, well I, no i
2: don't think so i think that there you, you do see unionists and even loyalists saying that they might engage with something like that if for example it discussed the possibility of the republic re-entering the uk but that's so blatantly off the wall that it wouldn't be a credible uh balancing proposal and, and, and it comes down to the, the the much much wider problem of how do you how do you achieve balance in these issues Uh, The the conversation that nationalism is effectively having with itself at the minute about flags and anthems and Commonwealth membership and so on, that's a desperate search for balance. It's very, you know, very honourable in a lot of ways. It is nationalists sitting around thinking, what in the name of God could we give these people that they might like? Maybe a new flag, maybe a new anthem. Bear in mind, unionists aren't asking for these things or engaging at all. Commonwealth membership is something cooked up, I think, entirely from, from within Dublin um, the, uh even the idea uh, that uh, that a United Ireland vote might require more than 50%, one, uh, 50% plus one vote was something that came entirely from within nationalism, North and South, from the Taoiseach, from the SDLP, from people like that. Unionists have never suggested this, quite the opposite. And yet unionists ended up getting blamed for it. It ended up becoming an argument about how awful unionists were for wanting to trash the agreement. And I can see that happening in the conversation happening now about flags and anthems nationalism nationalists start it, engage in it, have a disagreement over it, and at the end decide, God, those awful unionists, they let us have this argument. And it's just it's just a ridiculous spectacle to watch. Why anyone would want to get involved in it, I can't imagine.
1: And yet, and yes, reading your your own piece in the in the Irish Times last week, I mean, you I think I'm right in saying that you you acknowledge that there is there is a very strong possibility that there will be a majority for a united ireland within i think you suggest a 50 year time time span which is you know there which means there are people listening to this podcast who are adults who will still be alive when it's really quite possible if not probable that that mm. will have come to pass does unionism not need to think about what that means and how we get from here to there or does it just pull up the barricades and say no surrender
2: well, I mean, I think that that second option is perfectly valid. I, I had one uh, one reader uh, contacted me online to say, "Well, um, if there's going to be United Ireland in fifty years, why not move to it now?" And I thought, "Well, I'll be dead in fifty years. You <laughs> I'm not going. I'm not going to kill myself now. You know, you don't. I don't think. I don't think people quite grasp the mentality of uh, of where unionism is on this." Uh, What we have, we hold works in the temporal as well as the physical space. And 50 years from now, the world could be could be completely different. Uh, I mean, 50 years from 50 years ago, unionists all considered themselves Irish and wouldn't have had any or or, or the vast majority of, of unionist people would have had no issue being described as Irish. That's one extraordinary change that has taken place over 50 years, entirely due to the troubles, as far as I can see. That could that could reverse again completely in 50 years. Uh, lord knows where we'll be in 50 years so it is perfectly valid i
1: think to, to just sit tight for the moment and think well, well we'll see how things work out and a last question then and i've put this to a number of other distinguished guests over the last while what happens if it is a 50 plus percent plus one majority in for unity in 10 years or 15 years or whatever in your view mm. do unionists then go fair enough that's it story's over Work. I'm not going to quite say you come out with your hands up because that that would feed, feed into some of the, the stereotypes. But they basically just say, that's it. Those are the rules and we lost.
2: Well, um, uh, to the best of my knowledge, no unionist has ever disagreed with that no unionist leader. And in fact, uh, I think both Peter Robinson, the Orange Order and several loyalist leaders that I'm aware of have all said in recent years that a 50% plus one vote would have to be accepted. That's the point. It has to be accepted. It doesn't matter whether anyone would like it or not. How would Northern Ireland be viable uh, otherwise? Uh, so, 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 yes.
1: With those, with those elements of the unionist political movement, which have been associated with violence in the past, do you not think that some of them, at least, would seek to resist it by force?
2: The basis for loyalist uh, loyalist violence in Northern Ireland has has always been the greater number, the majority. That that was that that was the basis of it. Uh, without that. I think that uh, sustaining the, the even their idea of any legitimacy for violence would be impossible.
1: Even if it's the greater number in Antrim, that,
2: that I think that underestimates the, the fact that Northern Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland is real to us. It it, it it is our country, and we we now perceive of it as our national and geographic unit. Uh, and, and of course, you're saying. That, that has changed, in, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, but there was a basis of Ulster, of retreating into Ulster itself, a geographical unit. I, I I mean, repartition was something considered by loyalists on the fringes in the 70s, and even they dismissed it as insanity. No, I, I, I can't see that happening. Um, I'm not saying that in such a scenario, things would be easy, but unionism has already accepted that that result would have to be recognised.
1: It's very, very last question. I promise this is definitely the last question. With all those things going on, and they are undoubtedly going to continue to go on on the nationalist side, those sort of debates, uh, and that heightening, I suppose, of debate which you've described, how stand the rather rickety Good Friday Agreement institutions, do you think, in the medium term, like beyond the, that May election for the following term and indeed, over the, let's say, over the next 10 years, uh, given their fairly you know, un- unimpressive performance over the last 10?
2: They're absolutely as rock solid as they've ever been, if not even a little bit more so. Uh, in fact, one of the, the the weird disconnects about politics at the minute is the, the is how business like things are up on the hill. It, 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 I've never known it actually to be so so uh, busy legislatively. Everyone's in a rush to get serious work done. Sinn Féin's just passed a draft budget, for goodness sake, that actually calls for cuts across the board for health. It's it's amazing, and uh, and and unprecedented. And and yet, out, uh, out amid the uh, the chattering classes, such as Northern Ireland has, it's all doom and gloom, and oh, if it falls, it'll never get up again. Whereas, in fact, under new legislation, if we had, uh, you know, an executive collapse, we'd have an election, and then we'd have another election, until it goes back again. And we'd have another land surge, because devolution is what the public wants. It's the only idea Britain and uh, Ireland have ever had for addressing our problem, and it will continue to be so uh, until Northern
1: Ireland's dying day. and that. Rather cheerful note, we will leave it there. Thanks very much, Newton, for joining us. Thanks also to Dennis Daunton for joining us also, to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, J.J. Vernon. we're going to be back in your feed very soon indeed. But until then, thanks very much for listening.